hopefully we are reading God's Word every day and studying every day as we're supposed to. Um, I had a few thoughts this morning I'd want to want us to think about, and the caption says, Believing in God, Believing God, and uh, th- there is a difference. There was a poll taken in 2017 by the Gallup organization, and the question was, do they people believe God, in God? And there were 87% that said they did. 87% said they believed in God. Are you convinced that God exists? Well, it drops down to 64%. So, 36% of the people uh, really don't believe in God. You might as well say 4 out of 10 that just don't believe in God. That's in our country. But that's not good. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul writes, For since the creation of the, of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. When we see the world just the world and how the seasons and how everything works, we ought to know that this is not some accident that just happened. That this is by design. When you look at all of that, all of the world and the beauty of it and the the terribleness of it when there's a, a hurricane or a storm, and realize that the God that made this is more powerful even than that. And when you think about the human body, a few weeks ago I burned three fingers and had pretty good whelps on them, uh, blisters on them, but underneath that, that fluid, there there was skin forming to to come back, and it did. They, you know, they just they're better than before, I guess. I don't know. But how things like that happen, it's just not an accident. It's by design. But 36% of us in this country do not believe, really believe in God. Out of all the evidence that's available, they just don't believe. 87% believe in God. 64% are convinced God exists. 23% take 87, subtract 64. 23% are just talking. They, yeah, I believe in God, but they really don't. They really don't. Thirteen percent don't even acknowledge who God is. The eighty-seven to thirteen—that's one hundred percent. Thirteen of thirteen percent just, you know, He doesn't exist as far as they're concerned. I have more respect for them than I do the the ones that are just saying, "Yeah, I believe in God," but they don't really. At least they took a stand. So sixty-four percent. Say they are, they're convinced God exists, but many of those are in the, I got him up here. I believe he's there. I know he's there. I believe him. And that's troubling. So I want to ask you, what good does belief in God or faith in God do you if that's as far as it goes? 
what good will it do? And that's what this is all about uh, today, and that's what else I, want, I want us to think about. I want us to look um, at Mark chapter 1 and verses 23 through 25, uh, t- 23 and 24, they're up here on the board. It says, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Here's Jesus. He's teaching. He's in a synagogue. He teaches as one with authority, Mark tells us, because he does have authority, by the way. But this man with an unclean spirit, a demon, says, let us alone. What do we do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. He cried out, it says. And I think we missed something in that according to the commentaries. It's a shout or a cry with the possible implication of an unpleasant nature. This wasn't good to hear. I mean, this was a sound that stirred everybody. They said, what is going on when he says this? Did you come to destroy us? And that idea is not extinction, but ruin. Loss, but not a loss of being, but a loss of well-being. That's from vines. So if Jesus destroys us, that judgment, or God does, it's, we will be aware of not being in a good state. Um, there will be no well-being. There will be a place without him in tremendous pain. Want us to look then. We're going to start out in James, or, or continue in James chapter 2, and then we'll come back to it near the end. So, the unclean spirit, though, believes in God and his Son. Now, he's not going to do anything with that information, but he at least believes in God. He does. I, and he did confess who he was. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But that's as far as it went. Now, Let's look in James 2 and verse 19. It's up here on the board. It says, You believe that there is one God you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And I was telling Wanda before services, we were talking about something. And I said, I I came across this verse, and I was looking at some things that people wrote about it. And us not having a Jewish background, we missed something. And I didn't know this, but we miss something here. It says, you believe in God, you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Part of that verse is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now this is basic to Judaism, this verse up here, Deuteronomy 6, 4. And they would have recited this and the following four more verses with it and maybe two other different places in, in one other place in Deuteronomy, another place in Numbers or somewhere, um, in what was called the Shema. And I didn't know anything about this. So when... When... when uh, James writes, you believe there is, that there is one God. You do well, even the G- demons believe and tremble. 
he's quoting part of this beginning of their prayers twice a day that they would have done. And like I say, we just wouldn't have understood that because we don't have that background. You believe that, that there is one God? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. So that's what they would have begun their prayers with uh, twice a day. And so, to show you I'm not just exactly making that up, how ingrained was this Shema among the Jews? How, how deep did it go? So I want us to, well, I've already got it on the board too. Mark chapter 12 and verses 28 through 30, where it says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. You see what Jesus answered? The Shema. That's what he said. Maybe Jesus has first-hand knowledge, of course. But here's this Jew and so Jesus answers him with the way he would understand it. Here's the first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the following. That word, that Shema that we mentioned is the word hear. That's what they would have understood when it was said. So I got a couple of quotes from people there's a there's a problem though with not with the confession itself, but from faith not going beyond the verbal. Well, that was interesting when I read that. That just saying God is one and there is a God, if that's all we got, well, again we're just mouthing words. If that's all we're in, that's all us. If that's us, just saying it, that's not it. We're missing something. There's a man that wrote a commentary named Leslie Mitten. Mitten. He had an interesting quote as well. He said, it is, it's a good thing to possess an accurate theology or a study of, or learning about God. It's, it's a good thing to possess an accurate theology. But it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology possesses us. It's good to get the information about God. It's good for us to learn what God wants of us, learn how to serve him, but it doesn't do us any good if we don't do it. If it doesn't possess us, if it doesn't grab hold of us and compel us to do what he says. I think of Paul, when I think of that instance, that he uh, served God before. Uh, we'll study uh, in the next couple chapters in Acts about Paul, Saul coming uh, into the picture. He tried everything he could to destroy the church. And when he learned the truth, it possessed him, as, as it were. And he did everything he could to, get, to build it back up and to make it grow, to strengthen it, to edify it. And so that's what we're talking about, to be possessed by this feeling that, that I'm supposed to be doing these things. So what is the difference then between the demons and the people who have faith but don't do anything? What's the difference in them? 
Well, the demons did display some kind of reaction to their faith, didn't they? The demons tremble in fear of judgment, knowing God will judge them. But that's as far as it goes. Turn to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. We want to begin reading in verse 21. Paul is on a ship and he's going, sailing to Rome. And there's this tremendous storm that has been there for days and days and days. And they have thrown... The, the, the tackle out, the, the load that was in the ship, they've thrown it out just so they can save their own lives. And um, Paul, Acts 27, we're going to begin in verse 21 in just a moment. And um, in verse 10 of chapter 27, Paul's telling them, some men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. So that's how serious this was. Paul is convinced that we're going to die. We're going to die. Now let's begin in verse 21. Well, in verse 20, now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that they would be saved was finally given up. Verse 21, but after, the long, but after long abstinence from, from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Take heart, therefore, men. For I believe, God, that it will be just as he told me. He believed God. That if God said it, it's going to happen. If God said it, we got to do it. He had been told... In Acts 23, in verse 11, But the following night, the Lord stood by, by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Pa Paul has stood before the Sanhedrin, and he made them so angry that they were willing to, they were about, the, the centurion was scared they were going to tear him to pieces. I think it says in verse 10. But, Paul, but God told him, stood by me. The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. So here he is. Been, he's been told he's going to Rome. Now he's in this ship and it's going to sink and he's confident it's going to sink in Acts 21. And an angel tells him, you're going to Rome. You're going to stand before Caesar and you're going to bear witness of me just like it had already been told him to be before. And so now he's, we got this. I'm going. I believe God that it will be just as it was told me in Acts chapter 27 and verse 25. So there is a difference then in believing in God like the demons do and believing God. 
that it will be as God says. Now, let's look in Luke 18, verses 10 through 12. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. We'll come back to the rest of it. So here's this Pharisee, this good Jew, who is strict in his consideration of the law and what he must do. And so he goes to the temple to pray. He stood up. The, I think the implication is when we see the rest of it, that it's in a prominent place there. He stood up and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He, he believes in God. But I think that's as far as it goes. I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I have no doubt that he does, even though it's not commanded that they do that. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I think he's a good guy. But he believes in God, and that's all. He's, that's as far as it goes because he just doesn't get it. Now let's look at the, Pharisee, uh, the, the tax collector. The tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Who, who exalted himself in these few verses right here? This Pharisee did. That's Pharisee. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Look at me. You, God, you're lucky to have me. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I possess. You, you, I'm, you're fortunate I'm with you. That's what it sounds like. But God says, this tax collector, he went to his house justified rather than the other. He went to his house in a good standing with God. He's uh, just justified would be a, a legal term, a judicial system phrase. You're not guilty anymore. He humbled himself before God, beat his breast. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Recognizing that he needs God. And the tax collector, or the Pharisee, Recognized that he didn't meet God in his own mind. Jesus was with his disciples, or his disciples was, were with Jesus for roughly three years. We're going to turn to Mark 8 here in just a moment, or it's going to be on the board for you. And his Jesus is calmed the great storm. They were in a ship on, on the Sea of Galilee. He stopped, calmed this storm with the word and peace was restored. 
He's many things. Heal people. All and he fed five thousand in their presence. And uh, I don't know how long later. It doesn't seem like it was all that long later. He feeds another four thousand. And right after that feeding of the four thousand, he's telling them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And and they think, up, oh, we didn't bring any bread. And so they they're having a hard time understanding about Jesus. In Mark 8, verse 22, Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. I see men like trees walking. I don't know why Jesus didn't just heal him, but he did not. And we don't know the purpose behind the two-step healing of this man, but we can only guess. We can only think about things that, that, that might be behind it. But I think this man being healed partially and saying, I see men like trees walking, symptomatic of Jesus' disciples. These 12 who've been with him in the ship on the, on the Sea of Galilee, feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000, healing all these people, and they still don't see Jesus. They see Jesus like trees walking. They don't have that clear vision of him uh, that we think they should have. So they just didn't see him right. They didn't see him correctly. They didn't get who he was. He's the Messiah, but this is not working out just like we thought it was going to be in our own wisdom. This is just not how it was supposed to be for the Messiah to come and do. But that's the way it was. And so I think that's symptomatic of us as well, that we read the stories of Jesus healing people and calming the storm and feeding 4,000 and feeding 5,000 and dying on the cross and raising again. But many times we don't see it. We just don't see it. And our country doesn't see it. They just don't. Turn with me to Numbers. Numbers 21. We're going to read a few verses there. Numbers 21. Israel is in the wilderness. And they have grumbled the whole time. And they have complained the whole time. If you read the stories, you know what I'm saying. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of the land, out of Egypt? to die in the wilderness for there is no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died therefore the people came to Moses and said we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us so Moses prayed to the, for the people then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks on it shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. So it was, if a certain if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay, so here's Israel, as I said, in the wilderness. <clears throat> and he, they have, as I mentioned, been have complained the whole time they were there. And they're going around the land of Edom uh, before they go into the promised land. And so they're going the opposite direction from Israel up here they, to go around and complaining and that's them so what they did they spoke against God and against Moses and they hated this detested this bread so they blasphemed God you speak against God you blaspheme him which is a sin and so the Lord sent fiery serpents among them and many of them died The, what they wanted God to do, um, pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. That the serpents will just be gone. They won't be there anymore. God's plan was to remove the cause of their suffering, but provi- not move the, remove the cause, the serpents. Not to remove them, but to, to provide a remedy for it. So the serpents are still going to be there. But the solution would require faith and obedience on the part of the people bitten by the snakes. If they were bitten by the snakes, their faith would, they would look at this, this bronze copper serpent and uh, then be saved. No one was saved from being bitten. The, the deal was still there. If one was bitten and chose to obey God by looking at the bronze servant, he, servant, serpent, he was cured from the bite. If they were bitten and didn't look at the bronze serpent, they died. The snakes didn't slither away. They didn't lose their fangs. and They continued to plague the people. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you're bitten? And there's a remedy right up here. You're going to, if, if you got any sense at all, you're going to, you're going to see what to do. You're going to know that God's provided us a remedy. Now, turn with me to 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18. Second Kings 18. Let's look in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He reigned 25, he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father, had, David, had done. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent, that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Isn't that interesting? That here's this object, here's this thing that Moses made at the request that God told him to make because the people were getting beaten, bitten by these serpents and dying. And 
the people of Israel now have chosen to offer incense to it. They were worshiping this thing. They were worshiping. They should have known that the deliverer from their misery was God, not the bronze serpent. You want to guess why there are, no, I think, why there are no actual artifacts from those long past ages? You know what's going to happen? Can you guess? Yeah, I think you know. Men are going to worship them. We've already seen that happen. That this this uh, venerated shroud of Turin, Turin uh, that people think was the binding that wrapped around Jesus or covered Jesus when he was in the in his tomb, they think, oh, this is it, and so they've. This is a holy thing now, and it's just a cloth. Men won't be satisfied with God in his word and only his word. They just won't do it. As evidenced by, in Hezekiah's time, the people burning incense to this bronze serpent. But it's God. It's his word and his word only. Turn with me to... Psalms 78. Psalm 78. Israel again. <laughs> this is uh, uh, set during, this is a contemplation of Asaph. But it's really about the people of Israel when they were in the, in the wilderness again. Uh, marvelous, verse 12, marvelous things he did in the sight of their father in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. All this stuff that he did that these people saw, that's where we are. That's where we are. And so they're complaining. Verse 17, but they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. They tested God in their heart by asking for the for the food of their fancy, and yet they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rocks, so the water gushed out, and the stream overflowed. Can he give us bread also? Can he provide? So he provided all this bread for them. In verse 21, Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger came up against Israel, because they did not believe in God. And did not trust in his salvation. He's talking about God chose these people. And he says, they don't believe in me. They don't trust in his salvation. In verse 32, in spite of this, they still sinned. Uh, we skip some things. And did not believe in his wonderful works. Now look in verse, <coughs> verse 34. When he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and sought earnestly for, for God. They sought earnestly for him. When they got in trouble, they sought earnestly for him. And they remembered that God was their rock and the most high, their, their redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth, and they lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. 
for he remembered that they were all were, were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. God almost had his fill, it seemed, uh, <coughs> and could have just done away with them. As a matter of fact, he started to right after they received he gave Moses the law. But they didn't believe in God, his own people. And they were, that's why in Acts chapter 7, we'll read Wednesday, talk about Wednesday night. There's some things that Stephen says in there um, that are point blank at them. Because they didn't believe God. They believed in him, but they didn't believe him. Now, in Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to look at a couple verses. I'll have them up here on the board. I'm going to take a shot at the King James Version. Sherry, it's not on purpose. I used the King James for <coughs> decades. And I didn't, before I had any commentaries, and you know, I just, it, it, it is it's beautiful. I love to read it. It uses some words that we don't use anymore nowadays, but the, the sentence structure, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. The message is true in that version. But I think it misses something as well. So in Hebrews 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, I want to read the, these two verses from the King James first. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They believed not unbelief. I think more up-to-date scripture or translations are better suited for what's really being said here. I'll just use the New King James. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. That's what the verse really says. They did not obey, which we read a while ago about all this stuff in the wilderness. The King James says they believed not. They didn't have faith. And that's true. They didn't have enough faith to do what God said do, so they didn't obey. And so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief, because their faith wasn't strong enough. Now, a conversation was had up here three or four weeks ago about uh Hebrews 3, 18, 19, I think it was, about these two verses. And the question was asked, and I, uh, it was after class, so. And I threw something out there that I thought was so. But anyway, I did a little checking over the last few days, and uh, this did not obey. This believe not, this did not obey. There's the Greek word for it in anglicized, so we can read it at least anyway. Which means the opposite of obeying. So they did not obey. That's what that Aramaic Greek word means. They did not obey. But if you just have that, it says believe not. They didn't, they didn't believe. Well, it's true. That's true. But they didn't obey. Now this unbelief is the Hebrew Greek word. In the same family, same root word, it's the opposite of believing. They did unbelief. That's, we got that. 
Belief, the Greek word, would be this one. You see how close it is to these? This is the root word right here. I am not going to pronounce it because I don't know Greek. But this becomes a negative or the opposite when you put this A in front of it. So they had faith. They had belief. But in this instance, in the desert, the opposite of obeying is part of the Greek word of belief. So they didn't have enough faith to obey. And that's why it's part of that Greek word belief. And so that's where we are. They didn't have enough faith to do what God said. Does that make any sense to you? I don't know. if it, I help, hope it would, would make some sense. So the translations do make a difference. Now, they didn't have enough faith to follow through and obey what God commands. That is not faith. That is unbelief. When we have the information, but we decided we're just not going to act on it, that's not faith. We might believe in God. We might have that notion up here that God is, and this is his word, but if we're not going to do anything with it, that's not faith. That's unbelief. It's not believing when God tells us what to do to be saved and we decide we're not going to do it. That's not faith. So then what did God say would happen to those who did not obey, who do not obey in Hebrews 3 verse 18? What did God say? He said, they shall not enter my rest. They won't make it. We won't be with him in heaven. I didn't realize I was over time. God says they won't enter his rest. In James chapter 2, <clears throat> go back to there. We're going to finish it up in just a couple minutes. James chapter 2. We're going to read verse 19 again through 26. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O God, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his faith, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot? Also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body was out, the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Our believing God cannot be known to others without our doing what he says. If we're just living just like everybody else, nobody will ever know we belong to Christ, will we? So faith without works is a dead faith. And by works, faith was made perfect. This is what God wants. This is how he knows that we love him. This is how he knows that we want to go to heaven. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Our faith, believing God, compels us to obey 
in all he commands. Look at Hebrews 11. That whole chapter is about doing what God said. If we are not doing what God says, we need to make a change in our life. We be baptized and have our sins washed away, or if we've done that and not lived right, we should confess our sins, repent, and ask for the prayers of this congregation. If you need to respond for whatever you need to respond to, why don't you come while we sing this song? Please stand.